this morning's message is, is on marriage. And so in, in light of talking about marriage, uh, I was talking to uh, Wayne and Sylvia Paulette just uh, right before service, and they celebrated their 50th anniversary. They just got back. Where is Wayne and Sylvia? Where are they? They didn't know I was going to do that. Raise their hand there. Congratulations on 50 years of marriage. That is such a blessing. Is there anybody here that has been married uh, longer than 50 years? Okay. All right. What a blessing that is. Over 50 years. Can you throw out some numbers? 54. 68. No, you're joking? Is that a joke? 5'8". 5'3". Where did I hear 68 from? Anybody 68 years in here? Miss Eloise, 68? Oh, God bless. (laughs) What a blessing. That is amazing. And you know what that represents? It represents God's grace and mercy on their life. And it also represents their commitment to honor God in their life. Their commitment to each other, but ultimately their commitment to honor God. And that's not, that, I just want you to know that is going to increasingly become less and less common for people to say, I've been married 50 years, 53 years. I've been married 40 years uh, my, my wife and I have been married for 14 years. That feels like hardly anything compared to 68 years. Uh, but that is going to become less and less common in our culture today because marriage is not celebrated in our world today. Marriage is not celebrated, especially marriage as defined by God. You, you know, anything that God creates, anything that God designs, Satan has in his crosshairs. And Satan has it on his bullseye. And he wants to destroy every good thing that God has created. And marriage is the first institution that God created. And he wants to destroy everything to do with what God designed and what God celebrates as the institution of marriage. And so I just want to read. Let's look at Genesis 2. This is the beginning of the institution of marriage, and, and this is a part of our DNA series, and, and the purpose of this DNA series is for you to hear our heart, my heart, about these core emphases and principles that we will preach at Living Word Church. You know, Pastor Rene, for over 38 and a half years, he focused on the power of God's Word. He focused on the value and importance of the local church. He focused on prayer and marriage and children and missions and evangelism. And I wanted you to hear that I'm, I'm the same way. That the, 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 those are all things that we need to continue to emphasize as a church. And so in dealing with the issue of marriage, I, I think we should start at Genesis chapter 2. Verses 18 through 24. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. And all the men say, amen. Amen. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, not a lot of men think they need a helper. But boy, do we we really know that we need a helper. Some of us like to act like we don't, but we do. Uh, Now, out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, God took one of the ribs, his ribs, and closed up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made, fashioned into, designed into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, as all of us men say, I know this is a corny joke that's been said by every pastor since Genesis 2 has been uh, preached. This is that last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and she shall be called, whoa, man, right? This is amazing. Can you imagine Adam right there? He's looking at the chimpanzees and the monkeys and the, the, the giraffes and the tigers and the elephants. And he's thinking, man, none of these are fit for me. This doesn't work. And I see how they're fit for each other. But there's nobody that is fit for me. And then God creates. He, God, God, God gives Adam some um, ambient and knocks him out. And when he wakes up, the greatest gift on planet Earth is sitting there right in front of Adam. And there's an instant recognition God designed this woman for me it was evident it was clear that man was designed to come together with a woman and he recognized it right away therefore verse 24 a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast men you have to hold fast to your wife hold fast cling to her and they shall become one flesh one flesh, what a divine mystery. One flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There was no sin yet in the garden. The fall had not happened yet. And so there was nakedness, but there was no shame. So marriage was God's idea. God designed marriage. And he has the right to define marriage however he says it should be defined. Because he is the, the designer. He is the creator. If you are a creator of something, don't, don't you think you have the right to decide what the definition of the creation is and how it should function properly, if you created it, well, God has the same right. And, and it is out of bounds for us as human beings to alter with God's creation. Amen. When God designs something, it, it, it is out of bounds for us as human beings to say, you know what, God, I know that you said this is how marriage should work and function, but I, I'm, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do because I'm not going to submit to your ways and to your word. And you know what? Family, brothers and sisters, that's what we've done. That's what man has done from the beginning. It's not just in marriage. It's everything good that God has created. Man thinks that they can be a God unto themselves, and they think that they can do what they want with their life, even though they are God's creation. They are image bearers of God. They believe they can live however they want to live. And so they become a God unto themselves. And this is what we see in Romans chapter 1. It says that ultimately those that reject God's ways, they worship the creature, the creations, more than the creator. That's what men do. They've been doing it since the garden. We'll see that in the fall in Genesis chapter 3. But we continue to do it. We try to redefine what God says is good. We try to redefine the way God has made things. And marriage is no different. Marriage is under assault. Marriage is under assault. It has been under assault, and it will continue to be under assault as long as there are human beings on the earth. Because inherently, men and women that are not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, there is a hatred in their heart for, things, for, for the things of God. They, they may not even recognize it. They may not even see it right now. But there is, not, there is not a willingness to submit to a standard of absolute truth. And so let, let me be clear. Let me be clear, it is Satan's desire to attack God's plan for marriage on every front. Beginning with the definition of marriage as described in scripture. Genesis chapter 2 makes it clear 
that marriage as designed by God is to be between one man and one woman. And that's what we just saw in Genesis. It's clear. You cannot misinterpret scripture. It's clear that God designed marriage to be between one man and woman and between one man and one woman. And that marriage between one man and one woman is to be a one flesh union that is a covenant, a lifelong covenant that is not to be broken. That's God's design for marriage. And that covenant, that one flesh lifelong covenant is a reflection of the covenant that Christ has with his church. It's the first thing I want to be clear about. Secondly, the very idea of marriage is under attack in our culture today. Fewer young men and women are getting married today. And why is that that so? Why is it so that fewer young men and women are getting married today? They're prolonging marriage. And and many of you have heard this. The idea is, well, I have to go to college. I I have to finish college. I have to start my career. I have to be prepared before I can get married. Whereas generations earlier, men and women were getting married at 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. Now, I know a lot of you are thinking you have 17, 18-year-old kids, and you're thinking, whew, there is no way that my kids are prepared for marriage. And, and you, you might be correct in that. But the trend is not getting anywhere near where I believe is healthy. I believe that God designed young people to get married. You know why I believe God designed young people to get married? So that they can have children when they're young. So they don't have kids when they're 37 and 38. <laughs> I told my wife's age. I cannot believe I just did that. That is, I can't. Well, I'm 30. She's, whatever. She's, oh my goodness. That is, the, that is the worst blunder you can ever make as a husband. Lord, forgive me. Please forgive me. But you're supposed to get married when you're young. So you can have children when you're young. Because when you get older, you can't. Chase them around like you used to chase them around, right? So I believe that God designed you to get married when you're young. Now, look, if you're here older and you got married when you're older, I'm not saying your marriage is not valid and it's not blessed by God. But the trend is this. And here's why the trend is increasingly headed towards people getting married later and later. is because the young people have witnessed the, the, the destruction that divorce has caused in their family. And they have seen their families ripped apart by divorce. And they think marriage doesn't work. Doesn't work. It's flawed. It's faulty. We, we, marriage is a, is, is a flawed experiment. And that is the idea that a lot of 20-somethings, 30-somethings have in their mind. That they have seen and they have experienced personally the pains of divorce. And so in their minds they think, if I'm ever going to get married, it's going to be a lot later in life. And it's going to be, it won't be until I am sure beyond the shadow of any doubt that this is the right person for sure. I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait. Marriage is under attack because of how divorce has, has wreaked havoc on the homes. Thirdly, I believe the third way that marriage is under attack is that Satan doesn't just stop at this foundational level you know, on, on the definition of marriage, but he makes it almost nearly impossible for married couples that desire to honor each other and honor God to stay faithful. You know, adultery is celebrated in our culture today. There's nothing you can see on TV and the movies, pretty much, that doesn't celebrate fornication and, and, and adultery and dishonoring your body with someone of the opposite sex outside of marriage. And so it's difficult if, if you are in tune with our culture. Sexual sin is celebrated in our culture. It is so easy for you to create 
an affair if you want it. There's apps for it. There's websites for it. You can get a divorce from your spouse quicker than, quicker than it has ever happened. There are people that will do it for you. I was pumping gas at the gas station, gas pump TV, and this lawyer is on there, and she says, basically, in a nutshell, we'll get you a divorce. It will be easy. No pressure. No strings attached. We'll get it done for you quick, 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 right? It's easy to get a divorce, and it's easy. It's easy. It's celebrated to be sexual Im- sexually immoral in our culture. I just want to read this quote from Dr. Albert Moeller about this issue. This is from a book, The Gospel for Life. And it says, throughout the centuries, adultery was seen as sinful. These days, adultery drives popular culture and entertainment. And it fuels the breakup of countless marital unions. The sexual revolution could never have gained the type of traction it has in the culture if adultery had continued to be understood as a great evil to be avoided and and, and a sin to be sanctioned. The marriage crisis is a moral crisis. This has all been made possible by a deliberate breakdown in the moral immune system of human society. And I believe he's right. I I believe he's right. The, The moral immune system of our society is broken down. And it's because there is not a submission to the absolute standard and truth of God's divine word. And so as a church, I want you to know I have three commitments And I'm going somewhere with this message, so you guys are on a journey with me, okay? But before we get to where I'm going in this message, I have three commitments I want to make to you as your pastor, that the DNA of our church is that we want to to, to emphasize and encourage marriage as God designed it, because we don't get to make the rules. So here's three things that we want to do. We want to help pre-married couples. My wife and I have done pre-marriage counseling for years. We don't do it as much as we used to, but years and years ago, for, for, for four years, for several years, years ago, uh, before I was a senior pastor, we, we have probably done premarriage counseling with 30 to 40 couples. And it is the joy of our heart, has been the joy of our heart to meet with couples that are, that are preparing to get married and to prepare them, to help them, to strengthen them, to build them. And Dr. Bud and Vicky Cluche, they are over that area in our church. And so if you are engaged to be married and you have not received premarriage counseling, I plead with you, get with Dr. Bud Cluche. Can you raise your hand? This is Dr. Bud here. They will help you. They will help you get the help you need. Look, all of us that are married, can you ever be fully prepared for marriage? No, it's impossible. But you can sure get a leg up on the competition, right? You can get some help. You can get some help from experienced men and women who have been down the road that can help you avoid some of the landmines that are out there. So that's my first commitment. That's our first commitment as a church. Our second commitment is that we want to strengthen marriages in this church. We want to always help those couples in here that are married and desire to stay married and want to honor God in their marriage. We want to help you in as many ways as we possibly can to strengthen your covenant, to strengthen your commitment, to help you walk through struggles. We will always be a church that builds marriages that strengthens marriages. We will preach what God's word says about marriage and how husbands should treat wives and wives should treat husbands. We will do marriage conferences. We will encourage you to go to marriage conferences. We want to strengthen marriages in this church. And thirdly, we want to help all of you in here. I know there are many of you in here that are divorced or you're going through a divorce and you have experienced the pain of that. We want to help you. We want to be a strength to you. We know that divorce is a reality. And some of you, you have been divorced and you have not recovered yet. 
and you're still struggling in your life, we want to encourage you that there is hope for the brokenhearted, that there are new beginnings for, for those that have been broken. So we want to continue to be a church that values those and helps those that have experienced pain in marriage. So those are my commitments. That is our DNA. So what I want to do now is, as we transition in this message, I want to talk to you about two main things. I want to talk to you about how the enemy attacks and God's good plan for marriage, how he attacks generally and how he attacks God's good plan for marriage. And then I want to talk about God's good plan for marriage. You know, the enemy has never changed his strategy when he attacks. He never has. He only has one weapon. What is his weapon for attack? It's lies. He has only one tool, one weapon, and it is that he is a liar, and he uses lies. And he uses lies to stand up against the truth of God's word and to get people to believe the lie instead of the truth and to make decisions that are contrary to what God's word says. It has always been his strategy. This is what John 8 says about Satan. John 8, 44, it says this about Satan. Jesus is speaking to a group of Pharisees that are contrary to Christ. And he says, you are of your father, the devil. You know, Jesus cut it straight. He didn't mince words. He said, you are of your father, the devil. And then he begins to describe the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. And here's how the devil is. Here's who he is. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies who he is he only has one strategy and when you go back to the garden eve and adam are in the garden god's created them and god tells adam and eve that they can god tells adam that he can that they can eat he can eat of all the trees and the fruit and the vegetation in the garden but he cannot eat from the tree this one tree in the middle of of the garden god sets the rules god sets the rules and the parameters about how he, he he should live And what happens, and you see in Genesis 3, it says that the serpent, Satan, disguised as a serpent, comes and has a conversation with Eve. And there are three things in this strategy, these three areas that Satan emphasized with Eve, this is his same strategy that he uses today for all of us in any area of our life when we're tempted to reject what God's word says. It's the same strategy. And let's look at it. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Then he said to the woman, first strategy, first attempt, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, second strategy, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. For God knows, third strategy, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. God knows that you will be like him if you eat of this tree. That's the third strategy. So what are these three strategies that he used against Eve to deceive her? And she influenced her husband? And what are the, three, the same three strategies? What is Satan actually saying here? The first thing when he's saying, did God actually say? This is what he's saying. It is true. It, it, excuse me. Is it true that God has actually, has really restricted the pleasures of this garden for you? Is it really true? Did God really say that, that you couldn't eat from that tree? 
He's trying to cast doubt on what God's word said. The second thing, will you, not, you, you will not surely die. What he's really saying there is there will be no consequences for disobeying God. There's no consequences. And then the last one, for God knows that you will be like God. If you eat, you'll know the knowledge of good and evil. This is what he was saying. Ultimately, God is withholding something good from you. He's attacking the character of God as being a good God to his, cre- to his creations. Those are the three lies. Did God actually say you will not surely die and God is not good? He knows he's withholding something from you. So these are the three ba- basic lies that Satan still uses today. God's word cannot be trusted. Disobedience and sin will not cost you and God is not good. Take those three lies and you place them in any area where you know God's word says this is not right. This is not good. You should not live this way. This is, these are rules that you should not break in your life. You take those three lies. This is what you will believe if he will try to, Satan will try to get you to believe these things and influence you to disobey. Can God's word be trusted? Can God's word really be trusted about marriage and, and sexuality? Can it really be trusted? Are you really supposed to stay committed for life in a marriage? Should we always provide a, a way of escape outside of a marriage? Should it really be a lifelong covenant? What about sexual sin? Is it really wrong? I know God's word says throughout the Old and New Testament that, that, that sexual sin is wrong. But, but can God's word, just leave those up there for me. Can God's word really be trusted? And then, then once God gets you to start doubting the truth of his word, then he starts to get you to believe that, hey, it's not going to cost you anything. It's just, it's my body. I can do what I want to do. It's really not going to cost me. It won't cost anybody else. Dis- disobedience won't cost you. It really doesn't matter how you live with your body. It doesn't matter how you live your life. It's up to you. You make your own decisions. And when he gets you there, then he gets you that, you know, God's really not good. Because if he was really good, he would not restrict my desires. He wouldn't, dis- he wouldn't restrict me from living how I desire to live. And that's where you get to Romans chapter 1. And it says this, it says that God turns people over to the lust of their flesh. And said, if this is the way you want to go, if you've believed the deceptions of the enemy, that his words cannot be trusted, that sin and disobedience will not cost you, and that God's ultimately not good, if you believe those, well, hey, go your way. Go your way, and that is a form of God's judgment. When he turns people over and he lets them go, and he lets them suffer the consequences of their choices. And this is where we are in our culture. Always believe these lies. If we always believe these lies, this is, we end up in America, in our world, where we are now because people have consistently believed the lies of the enemy. It's all about God's word. Can it be trusted? You know, I was listening to a radio program I was studying yesterday in the office, and, and as I was leaving, I was studying, and, and, and I knew that this was a very important message for me to preach, and I'm making bold statements about what is true and right and good from God's word about marriage and life and, and sexuality. I knew it was a very important message, and I get into the car, and the, and the first thing that I hear is an, in, is an interview about a famous preacher from the mid-90s that rejected the fundamental tenets of the gospel. And they were interviewing him, and and, and, and this is what he was saying. He basically ultimately believed that God was not good if man would ultimately end up in hell. And how could God be a good God if people go to hell? And so he, the way he was describing it was that he was thinking to himself. He was thinking to himself, this cannot be right. This cannot be good. What was he doing right there? 
He was setting himself up above the word of God. It, it is all about what you believe about God's word. And because it, because it did not make sense to him, he had, a, he had a diminished view of the holiness of God and the justice of God. And he, somewhere at the core of his being, he did not believe that God was actually holy and that man was actually sinful and that God was just, God is just, to judge men when they sinfully reject what they, what, what, what they know is true. And so he said, you know what, For, forget all of it. 5,000 member church, I'm preaching a new gospel. And he calls it the gospel of inclusion. It's, he calls it his gospel of inclusion. So it's all about God's word. And ultimately, that's where you have to land. What do I believe? Do I believe God's word is divinely inspired? It's inerrant, it's true, it's God-breathed. And it has everything necessary in it for my life and how I should live and how marriage should work, how family should work. How my, what my responsibilities are as a husband, as a father, on, on, at, at, at work, on my job, in every single area of life do I believe that God's word is true and is right. That's where the battle rages. Here's the lie concerning marriage. Here's the lie. The Bible is an outdated religious book that cannot be trusted to deal with modern cultural issues. That's a lie. God's word gives us the blueprint for marriage because God is the designer. And marriage and God's design for it is never outdated. And, 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 and never, it never is, is too, uh, um, too, it's never too difficult to fit it in any culture. It transcends culture. The lie is that the Bible is an outdated religious book that cannot be trusted to deal with modern cultural issues. Secondly, here is the second lie. My life and my body belong to me. The choices I make will only impact my life. It's not true. It's not true. And there are some of you here this morning, you know that that's not true. That you, in your past, lived, have lived lives of sexual immorality and you have suffered the consequences. And you would say that that is a lie and that it's not true. You've experienced the pain of divorce in your life and you would say that that is a lie. That the choices that we make, there are consequences for our choices. And here's a third lie about marriage and sexuality. If I choose to submit my life to God's design for sexuality and marriage, I will miss out. I'll miss out on, on who I'm really meant to be. It is a lie. If God is the designer and we believe that we are created in the image of God, Genesis chapter 1, 27 and 28, then that means that if we submit our lives to the designer's will, the one who created us, because he knows best, then we will not be unfulfilled. That we will be fulfilled in the area of sexuality and marriage. So that's the lie. That's how Satan attacks. That is his attacks on marriage. And now, as we come to the end of this message, what I want to talk about is what is God's good plan for marriage? What is his good plan? That's, this, is the evil's, this is the evil strategy of Satan to try to undermine marriage. This is his attempt. This is his goal. This is what he wants to do. He wants to destroy marriage because his image bearers, men and women, come together. And Satan wants to destroy anything having to do with God's image bearers. But what is God's good plan for marriage? God's good plan for marriage is this, number one. In marriage, we are called to mutually complete one another. In marriage, we are called to mutually complete one another. Genesis 2, this is what we see in Genesis 2. Let's go back to Genesis 2, 18 through 25. It says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper, say it with me, fit. For him. We fast forward back down 
to verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Fit for him. And then you, you read down through there and it says that the two become one. What is God saying there in Genesis chapter 2? He's saying that marriage is designed for two people to come together and for them to mutually complete one another. You know, see, here's what happens when you get married. This is what happened for me and, for me and my wife. We, I, I first laid eyes on her. Whenever I was, and she can correct me on the dates here, I think I was 21 years old. And uh, I was like, whoa, man. <laughs> it's like she almost came out of my rib or something. She, she was, I, I'm missing something. I recognized right away I was missing her. And uh, she was not missing me, though. She wanted nothing to do with me. <laughs> I was just a 21-year-old boy <laughs> at that point. And, uh, and so I'm at... Uh, uh, meet her at, at, at a church here, here in town and, and I just have eyes for her and I'm like I'm just going to watch her for a little while check her out and so fast forward um, we go to uh, the church that we're at goes on a mission trip to Honduras and I signed up for Honduras because I know she's going I was not going I was not going to Honduras so that I could go serve the Lord and that is the honest truth your pastor is not lying to you that is the honest truth. I was, never felt like I had a missionary call. I felt like I had an American call <laughs> to be a pastor. <laughs> and to send, I'll send out the missionaries all over the world, right? So I went to spend time with her. And again, still, we're not really, it's just small talk conversation, you know. So fast forward, at, when we're in Honduras, I finally catch her eye. You'll never guess how it happened. <laughs> and we're sitting down. We had this little outreach thing that we're doing at this church and, and at the end of the outreach we're handing out candy to kids and so I'm sitting down Estelle's sitting right next to me and just happened that way I don't know how I got sit, I, I probably placed myself there and and we're passing out candies and somehow I remember overhearing that she loved the caramel the, 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 the caramel candies so I started stashing the caramel candies on the side <laughs> to give to her and she will say if you ask her that that's when she was like oh that guy's pretty nice so men, how do you find your way to the heart of a woman? Find out her favorite candy. <laughs> That's how you do it. And so, so she first began to, to notice me. And then when we got back from the mission trip, right before service, Sunday morning before service, I, 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 get, I get up to her. I've had the courage finally. I've settled in my heart through lots of prayer that I want to try to pursue her in marriage. Because I was serious. I wasn't going to pursue a woman. If I wasn't serious about potentially marrying her, I just wasn't going to date around. So all you young guys, don't just date around to date around. It's a waste of time. If you are of marrying age, you make a decision to protect the heart of the one that you're interested in. So that's what, that's what I did. That'll preach. Um, so I approached her before service and I said, I would like to talk to you after service. And I left it at that. <laughs> and so we go through service. I'm not listening to the music. I'm not listening to the preaching. I'm sure she wasn't either. We get at the end of service. And, and so I, we're in the fellowship hall. And these are the first words that came out of my mouth as I am approaching my future wife to express my desire to get to know her. First words were, I've been watching you. <laughs> True story. That is actually what happened. I've been watching you. And so, so creepy. Not only after I got out of my mouth that I wanted to get to know her and that I would like to call her and that I already had her phone number. Um, <laughs> I asked her if, 
if she would like that for me to call her. And the only word she said that whole time was, I would like that. And uh, I called her the 24 hours later, I think. And, and here's, so here's what happened. Here's what happened. We began to think that we had so much in common. We begin to like, oh, you like this and you like that and, and, and this is your favorite thing. Well, this is my favorite thing and oh, oh, we have so much in common and this is what happens when you, when you start dating. You think that when you come together, when God brings you together, it's because you have so much in common. But all the married couples will tell you right now that that is not true. <laughs> you may have big picture things in common. We love Jesus. We like to sleep. We like to eat. but beyond that we're different and why are we different because God made us that way and 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 that's the first good plan of God in marriage that men and women come together in marriage and they they come together to mutually complete each other but here's where the problems begin in marriage is that your the differences of your spouse become mission fields for you (laughs) and you think it is your objective to make your spouse like you And I just have to say, thank the Lord that I have not made my wife like me in a lot of areas. Because we would be broke. (laughs) We would not have a house. Because I am a a spontaneous person, spender. Let's do, you know, do things and let's not think about the budget. That's just my personality. She is the budget crunch lady. And like, I can't buy her flowers to express my love to her because she will not think about how beautiful the flowers are. She'll think... Oh, where's that going to fit in the budget? <laughs> it, does, it does nothing for our marriage. But thank God we're different, right? We, so when she doesn't want to go do a spontaneous thing, you know, I, because of me, our, our family has fun. <laughs> but, but, but because of my wife, because of my wife, our family has a roof over their head and food to eat. <laughs> and that's the true story. God designed us differently as husbands and wives. Our differences are not mission fields. Our differences are there by design. When I'm weak, my wife is strong. Where I'm strong, my wife is weak. My wife hates confrontation. Hey, I'm good with it. Let's get it done, right? Let's talk about it. Let's confront the issue, right? right. I, I, I know you never would think that I would say what I'm about to say, but Rocky Balboa agrees with me. Rocky Balboa agrees with me. Who's ever seen the movie Rocky, the original Rocky? You got Rocky and you got Paulie. And Paulie is the brother of Adrian. So Rocky and Adrian are dating. And so Paulie, they're in this meat locker and, and they're hacking, around, hacking at some meat. And Paulie's like, Rocky, I don't get it. Like, like what is it? I don't, you guys don't have anything in common. You're so different from each other. And Rocky says, she's got gaps and I've got gaps. Together we fill gaps. <laughs> and that, that is one of God's good plans for marriage. I got gaps. I got blind spots. She's got gaps and blind spots. And together we fill gaps. That's God's good plan for marriage. Amen? God calls a man and a woman to come together in marriage to accomplish together what they could not accomplish, accomplish on their own. God divinely calls that in marriage. Now, I just want to say this. For those of you who are not married yet, you're single, whether you've never been married or you're single because uh, a previous marriage has ended, I just want you to say, I, I want to say to you that you are not incomplete in your life. 
that, that God, God, God can use you to do plenty of things in your life to, to, to glorify him and, and he can use you in your life to accomplish things that, you know what, honestly, you can accomplish a lot be, before you get married because once you get married, you have responsibilities and you're accountable to, to love your wife and to raise your kids. And so you are not incomplete here this morning if you are single. God just specially calls people to get married that have gaps and they come together and they fill those gaps and they accomplish together what they could not accomplish on their own. Second good plan for marriage that God has designed, secondly, is this, is that in marriage we are called to mirror God's image. We're called to mutually complete one another and we're called to mirror God's image. How do we mirror God's image in marriage? Mark chapter 10, Jesus says this about marriage. Verses six through nine, Jesus talks about this. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. People always want to say that Jesus never talked about his, God's design for marriage, but he did right here. Mark chapter 10, and he did it in other places. God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. So they are no longer two, but are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So how do we mirror God's image in marriage? We mirror God's image in marriage is that in that we are one flesh. Two become one. So God's mathematical equation for marriage is this. One plus one equals one. That is a divine mystery. How is it that two people become one? Only God can do that. So we mirror God's image in that God is, tri- is, a, tri- is a triune God. So God is one plus one plus one equals one. God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but he is one. So we mirror God's image in marriage in that two become one and three are one. We, it is a divine mystery. The, the Trinity is a divine mystery. How do you explain three and one? I've been trying for a while, and, and it's, not, it's something that you will never fully comprehend in our minds. And the same is true for marriage. How is it that two literally become one. It's a divine mystery. It's a beautiful picture of the union that Christ has with his church. But what are, what, what's another way, a practical way that we mirror God's image in marriage? We also mirror God's image in marriage by how we love and forgive one another. That's how we mirror God's image. Our differences, those differences we just talked about that are meant to mutually complete one another, our differences are no doubt designed by God to strengthen our marriages. But our differences are no doubt opportunities for hurt and unforgiveness. And those areas in your life where you have gaps and weaknesses, Satan wants to use those in your marriage to cause hurt and unforgiveness in your marriage. And marriage is an opportunity, is a daily opportunity to demonstrate, to mirror God's image, to mirror who God is, who Christ is in your life, to walk in forgiveness to walk in forgiveness to your spouse. How many of you know that that's true in your marriage? There are plenty of opportunities. You know, your spouse can hurt you more than anybody can hurt you because you're one. So when your spouse hurts you, it is a deep hurt and a pain. When their differences come up against your differences and there's pain and there's hurt and there's rejection, it is a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly opportunity for you to demonstrate, to mirror God's image and who Christ is in forgiveness and reconciliation. We mirror God's image in marriage by loving our spouse the way Christ has loved us. So sometimes you hear people say, well, you know, my spouse doesn't deserve to be forgiven. They don't deserve it. They don't deserve that I would let that go. 
There's so many things in marriage that we, 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 we shove under the rug of our life and our marriage. And we just say, you know what? They don't deserve it. I'm leaving that there. And until they earn back my trust, I'm never going to forgive them. You know, that's not how God related to us. We didn't deserve forgiveness. We didn't deserve, we didn't earn the forgiveness. And your spouse may never earn your forgiveness. And they may never, and they may, they may, they will probably never deserve that forgiveness. But you are called by God to relate to your spouse the way that Christ has related to you. That is the grounds of biblical forgiveness in marriage. And we reflect God's image when we do that. You know, the, the, the picture of love that we see that is the picture of God's love, that's biblical love, is in 1 Corinthians 13. And it's read in, at almost every wedding. I just want to read it. This is what we model in marriage. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. How often do we do that in marriage? It has to be my way. I'm guilty. We're all guilty. It's got to be my way, right? That's not what love does. Love yields. Love says, not my way, but your way. I'll do it your way. I don't see the whole picture. That's love. That's mirroring God's image. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. This is the second way in which God's good plan for marriage is demonstrated in our lives. Firstly, Firstly, we are called to mutually complete one another. Secondly, we're called to mirror God's image in the way that we love and forgive one another. And lastly, the practical good plan of God in marriage is that, number three, in marriage we are called to multiply a godly legacy. Like, yeah, this is obvious, right? God has caused men and women to come together to make babies. Amen. Good plan, God. High five to you. God's good plan. If you're here this morning and you're married and you're young and married and you're like, well, when are we going to have children? And, and you can. And I know there's lots of situations where you can't have children and, and you, you pray and you trust the Lord. There's foster care. There's adoption. There's options for you. If you can have kids and you've been waiting for the right time, I want to tell you the right time is now. Have children. Have children. Children are not a hindrance. They're not a burden. That's a lie of our culture. Children are a hindrance. They're a burden. And we're called to have children. This is what it says in Genesis 1, 27 through 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God commanded husbands and wives to be fruitful and multiply. So maybe, maybe you can't have children bi- biologically, but I just want to encourage you, you can be fruitful and multiply in your life through, through your marriage. As, as a husband and wife, God can place kids in your path that you can instill godly principles and leave a legacy through them. You can, you can we, we have adopted our three-year-old Reagan Joy Buffkin. We adopted her uh, June, was, can you give me the date again? June 14th. 2017, yeah, we adopted her. She became a buffkin. We fostered her for over, she's a foster care for over three years, and it was a beautiful picture. Beautiful. And so we, we brought her in, and you can do that. You can do that for children or children all over our state that need care, that need reconciliation. 
God can use you. Look, what, look how the psalmist describes children. This is a far cry from our culture's view of children being a burden and a hindrance. Psalms 127, 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, not a burden, not a hindrance to your style. Children don't crimp your style, though they, they do a little bit. <laughs> we did so much stuff before we had kids, but now we don't do anything. <laughs> Go have children. fruit of the womb are a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth have children when you're young and they're like arrows in your hand god's given you look your kids those of you who have kids your kids are special arrows that god as their creator he has uniquely designed them gifted them and called them and our job as parents is to take those arrows to put them in the bow and to direct that arrow in the right direction and at the right time we pull back the bow and we release them into the world to impact people for the gospel of Jesus Christ that's how you multiply a godly legacy that's what it looks like that is God's good plan for marriage blessed is the man verse 5 blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them fill your quiver blessed are you when you do that he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Amen. That's God's picture, good plan for marriage. He designed marriage. It is his plan and it is a good plan. And Satan wants to attack that good plan. And what we will do at Living Word Church is we're going to encourage the good plan. We're going to speak the truth about marriage. I'm going to consistently encourage you. I'm going to consistently encourage you in your marriages and help strengthen your marriages. Preach preach to you what God's word says or your roles and your responsibilities and your callings. That's what we will do. That's what we, we will do. God's plan for marriage and family is good. And we need to pray for the marriages of our church. And one of our first Wednesday prayer nights will be for our marriages, for marriages. We need to pray for the marriages of our church. We need to pray for our children. We need to pray that the Lord would strengthen our resolve to fight for the commitments we have made before him. I want to say this right now. God can restore broken marriages. It doesn't always have to end in in divorce. I know that some divorces happen. God allows that to happen. There's ways that God allows you to get out of a marriage and you have been abused or taken advantage of and but I want you to know that we will always remind you that broken marriages can be restored. That is God's desire. I know it doesn't always happen, but it is God's desire and it can happen. And it happens through the power of the gospel. So if you're here this morning and you are in in the middle of a difficult marriage, maybe your spouse is not here, hold on to hope. Pray like you never prayed. Pray and believe that God will restore your marriage. Don't just, don't just say it's done, it's over. Believe that God can restore. The spiritual health of our church is directly connected to the spiritual health of our marriages and families. And I believe that to be true. The spiritual health of our church is directly connected to the health of our marriages and our families. Would you stand, stand together with me? I want to pray for our marriages here this morning and I want to pray for our children. 
Won't you, won't you lift your hands? If you're married here this morning, won't you grab, the, grab your spouse's hand? I want to pray for our marriages. And if you have kids, I want to pray for our children here this morning. God, we come before you this morning as husbands, as wives. God, all the marriages that are represented here this morning, God, and we ask that you would help us to reflect your image in our marriage. God, I pray that you'd, that you'd help us to resist the lies of, our, of the enemy that he, he speaks through our culture. Help us to resist those lies, to believe the truth of your word, that your ways are good, your ways are true, your ways are right. Help us to, to keep our commitments to our spouse, to not chase other things, to not chase things and put them above you and above our marriages and our family. Help us to keep those commitments. I pray for all the husbands here this morning. I pray that we would all be men of God, men of integrity, men of character, that we would be servant leaders in our home. God, I pray for the women, that they would be strength, that they'd be women of integrity and character, that they would be the strength of their homes, that they would be the nurturers and those that are called to bring strength and care and balance to their families, to their marriages and their families. I thank you that our marriages... God, as we seek you and we seek each other, that, that, that our bonds will be strengthened and our resolve will be strengthened. God, and I pray for our children, our precious children that you've given to us, our children and our grandchildren. I pray that you'd help us to take them like arrows, to point them in the right direction, to recognize how you've gifted them and how you called them. And I pray that you would use us to pull back the bow and to launch them into this world as lights shining in the darkness. God, that is our prayer. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your truth. Thank you for the marriages and the families of this church. Bless them, strengthen them, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people say amen. Amen.